0: You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus peace be with you. My friends and my family in Christ, hear the word of the Lord. Then, the apostle John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, what we've aimed to do in this sermon series is to show you how the Bible is one unified story. So often we come to the Bible and there's these seemingly disconnected parts, dare I say, weird parts of the Bible where we're kind of like, what does this mean? I don't understand it. And the purpose of this series is to show you how these seemingly disconnected parts become one connected story but also to show how our very confusing and disconnected lives also become part of this story. See, we believe that the Bible is one unified story about God that all points to the person and work of Jesus. And we believe that Jesus wants his story to be our story. He wants his story to be your story. In the previous weeks, we had Pastor Andrew preach on the first chapter of the story, creation, from Genesis 1 and 2, where we saw that God is the all-sufficient, all-good, all-powerful creator, and he's created us good, for he is good. But then Pastor Luke, in week two of our series, showed us from Genesis 3 how our sin and our shame has led to a separation between us and God. But we're reminded of that beautiful news that one day an offspring would come from Eve that would crush the head of the safe serpent and offer us grace upon grace that goes deeper than our sin or shame. In week three, we heard about the theme and the chapter of reconciliation from 2 Corinthians 5.20 where Pastor Daniel showed us that Christ, that Christ has reconciled us to God and now we by nature, it's now our identity to be ambassadors of this message of reconciliation. You see, what we want to show you, what our hope and prayer is, is not that you would invite God into our small lives and stories because that would not be a God worth worshiping. It'd be a very small God, a God of our own image, of our own making. But instead, we want to invite you into a larger story, God's story, a God worthy of our worship, We've covered the first three chapters of this meta narrative of scripture creation, separation, reconciliation. And today we are going to focus on completion from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. And here is my prayer I'll give you the the long main point and then the short main point. You ready for it today? Is that our future anticipation? of the completion of Jesus' story would lead to present-day participation in his story. Want the condensed version? Anticipation leads to participation. Anticipation of Jesus' return leads to participation in his story until he returns. We're going to see that through three different lenses this morning. We're going to see in verses 1 through 8 of where we are headed. That's the first point. Two, how it will happen. And three, who will be there? Who will be there? Where we are headed, how it will happen, and who will be there? This anticipation must lead to participation. Y'all ready to dive in here? First point, where we are headed. Now, all these words... That revealed to John. All these words that were revealed to John, that's who's receiving these words. Most likely, this is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, and he's exiled on the island of Patmos, for he's not given up on Jesus' name. We read this in chapter 1, verse 4. It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. What is the book of Revelation? It's not really a book. It's a letter. It's a letter that circulated across seven churches in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey today. All these churches were facing persecution after persecution. And you can imagine in their pain and their suffering, they were tempted to leave Jesus to follow Rome to have a seemingly more comfortable life. And Rome is constantly referred to as the beast or Babylon. You can look in Revelation 18 to find that. See, for the Old Testament prophets, Babylon was a physical location, a nation. But for the Apostle John and the prophets of the New Testament, Babylon was symbolic for all that was wrong in the nations of the world. And John is putting an offer, a choice before these seven churches and for us today. He's asking, will you live a sacrificial life for the sake of Christ and for the sake of your neighbors knowing Christ? Or will you follow Rome and Babylon to have more comfort and security now? So what he does is he's telling them about the certainty of the future to inform how they are to live today. You see, the book of Revelation wasn't written to these churches so that they can get charts out and figure out the order of the last days. No, it was written so that we can have certainty of the future so we know how to reorder our days to reorder our lives see every time the return of Christ is talked about anywhere in the new testament it's saying this is what's going to be true of the future so that you know how to live today it's never meant for us to create charts and maps of when all the things are going to happen it's meant so that we can reorder our lives reoriented around the person and work of Jesus and his return And so when John writes these things, writes these things in Revelation 21, I want you to imagine what is John inviting us to participate in today in anticipation of the completion of our story. He says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now, did you notice in verse 1 that it's not merely a brand new heaven, but a brand new what? Earth. Jesus wasn't resurrected in a physical body so that we could be disembodied souls in the future just floating around wherever. No, it's not just a new heavens that is coming down to us. It's a brand new physical earth. We'll have brand new physical bodies without pain, without sickness, without COVID, without cancer, without anything that is failing your bodies today. He's promising us a brand new heavens and a brand new earth. Did you know that right now, creation is Groaning, the Apostle Paul says this in Romans eight twenty to twenty one. He says, the "Creation itself will be set free. It's not just us; it's all of creation will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You know, over the years." I've had the privilege of seeing some amazing sights around the world. I've seen Mount Everest. I've seen the French Alps. I've seen the Grand Canyon. I've seen central Pennsylvania. It's gorgeous. But do you know what Paul is telling us right here? All of creation right now looks like a mother in the middle of labor. Any mamas in the room? Is that a pretty sight? Think of the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Whether it's the fall colors on the leaves, an animal, it's in pain right now. Now let your imagination soar of what that might look like, fully redeemed, without the pain and sorrow and the curse of this world upon it. God wants to redeem not just us, but all of creation that surrounds us. And this is not just a heaven that we go to. Look, look what it says. It's not, heaven is not somewhere we go. Heaven is someone and something that comes down to us. Did you see that in verse 2? It's coming down to us. The new heavens and the earth come down to us like a what? Like a bride. When I officiate weddings, I I remind the groom that one of the most amazing and beautiful and powerful moments of the wedding ceremony is when his bride walks down the aisle to greet her groom. In that moment, there's only perfection, there's only beauty. There's only love. And why is that so powerful? It's because Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriage was always meant to point to the relationship between Jesus, the groom, and the church who is the bride. It's a foretaste of our future reality in the new heavens and new earth. The reason this is so emotional and celebratory is because it's a foretaste of what we will experience when the new heavens and the new earth come down to us. And this city, Jerusalem, verse 3, this city is symbolic. It represents not just who God is and the dwelling place of God, but that's where God's people is. See, one of the things that I love chatting with my kids about is when heaven comes down. My kids don't ask Daddy, what will it be like when we go to heaven? They ask, what will it be like when heaven comes down to earth? And they talk about all the things that they're excited about. But very rarely do they talk about God in their version of the new heavens and the new earth. See, if our version of heaven does not involve the presence of God, You are not imagining heaven. You're imagining hell. And your imagination of what the new heavens and new earth will be. If it's just, I cannot wait to to escape this pain. I cannot wait to get out of this world. But there's no desire to be with the presence of God. The new heavens and new earth will be utterly disappointing to you? Is it true there'll be no more sickness and problems and pain and relational turmoil? Yes, it's true. That will be there. But that's only part of the plan. It's that God actually wants to be with us. Listen to me. This is not just a God who puts up with us. This is not just a God who just deals with us or a God that just tolerates us intolerance what a miserable way to relate to people just to tolerate somebody what a, a low view of a loving relationship This is a God who left heaven's throne to be with you. This is a God who put on human flesh and became like us to be with you. This is a God who loved you to the point of his own death. This is a God who put death to death in his grave. And his name is Jesus. And he is coming again to make all things new. This is where we are headed. Is this what your mind is caught up with? Is this what we are consistently, and and passionately anticipating. This is what our future is going to be like. But how will it happen? This is what the Apostle John reveals to us in verse 4. He says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, how many of y'all in here are familiar with The Lord of the Rings? Anybody? Just a few. Okay, we have some work to do in here. Some work to do. Now, in the, the final book of the trilogy of The Lord of the Rings, there's this character, Sam Gamgee. And after he awakes in Rivendell, this is after the, the ring is destroyed. He awakes in Rivendell, and he sees Gandalf, who he once thought was dead. He thought he saw Gandalf die in Mount Moriah at the hand of a Balrog. And Gandalf is no longer Gandalf the Grey, but he's now Gandalf the White. And Gandalf's presence meant something about the future for all of Middle-earth. And Sam asks this question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Because in seeing Gandalf resurrected, he knew that everything everything that was wrong with middle earth was going to be made right everything that was sad in his life would not be true any longer and this is what john is saying to these seven churches that jesus wasn't just slain by the dragon but he defeated that age-old dragon satan in the grave It was the death of sin. It was the death of Satan's dominion. And now in verse 4, John is revealing to these churches the death of death, which is the final enemy. And because Christ will return... Because we know this is certain. We can say as well. We know that all things that are sad in our life will come untrue again. This is what John is showing these seven churches. That God will be with us and it will all be new again. Jesus is saying to you right now, I'm going to get rid of everything that hurts you. I'm going to rid you of everything that harms you. Tears, death, mourning, and pain. I'm not just going to be with you and dwell with you. I'm remaking you and everything around you. I'll put to death everything that causes you relational death in this world. Done, he says. I'm going to put to death everything that causes you emotional death. Nailed in the coffin. And I'm going to put to death everything that causes spiritual death within you. It's buried in the grave. It's going to be no more, he says. It's finished. It's done. And he wants to know, John, do you trust these words? Church, do you trust these words? He says in verse five, write them down, for they are not just true about the future. They're trustworthy, he says. To trust that something will happen means that we will begin to reorient our lives of what is about to happen. And John is not picking up on these promises just from from Christ, who is revealing these things to him. These were words that were promised from the Old Testament. Look, Look up here at this chart with me. All these promises from Revelation. God's home is now among his people. That's a promise from Ezekiel 37 and Zechariah 8. That we will be his people is a promise from Jeremiah 31. That he will wipe away every tear from their eyes is a promise from Isaiah 25 and onward. That there'll be no more death. Another promise from the prophet Isaiah. And things are gone forever. More words from Isaiah. Do you see what this means? This is a continuation of the same old story. That God is always faithful. He always fulfills his promise. And that's what he's doing here. And he's wondering, church, do you trust this promise? Do you trust that he's going to make all things new? Remember, these words weren't revealed, so we can figure out the order of the last days. They were revealed to order our days. Do you order your lives trusting that these words are true in the future? Is your anticipation of the completion of this story leading you to participate in this story today? I mean, we do this, don't we? We do this when we trust that something's going to happen. You know, probably over the course of the next two months, social media is going to show off all of your friends who are getting engaged, right? You know what's coming in the mail? Wedding invitations. And what do we do with that wedding invitation? (laughs) We trust that the date that is set is the date that's going to be kept. And we start reorient our lives. I know single people right now, you're hating me right now. Um, it's like, oh, more wedding invitations. I get it. We start reorienting our lives, don't we, around that future date. We make sure our schedules are cleared. We even set aside some money to buy a fresh new outfit and a gift for them. And if you're so fortunate to be the ones who are gifted with marriage, you start reorienting your life in anticipation of the certainty of that future date that you are going to get married. Premarital counseling starts. Trying to figure out the food and the location. Then all these posts start showing up on Instagram of how you're working out for that wedding date. It's amazing how many days you're working out prior to the wedding date versus after the wedding date. Not judging you, just simple observation. But when we trust that something is coming, we reorder our lives to fit that schedule, don't we? And I just want to know Am I, are you looking so forward to this day? that you'll no longer follow the promises of Babylon? The promise of status, security, safety, and satisfaction in this temporary world? Are you ordering your lives to follow the fullness of the promise, the completion of this story, and the completion of your story? You know what Babylon is in a nutshell? It's America. It's all about me, myself, and I, and my story, my pleasures, my ease, my pain-free life at the expense of others around me. Are you following Babylon's story? Or are you following Jesus? The one who not only began your story at the expense of his life, but also promises to complete the story that he began in you. Look what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Philippi, who is wrestling with their assurance. He says, I am sure of this. He doesn't say, I think, or I might, I hope this might happen. He says, I'm sure of this, that he, that is Jesus, who began a good work in you, will bring it to what? Completion at the day of Christ Jesus. What Jesus is saying here. To the Apostle John, he's saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I'm the starter and the finisher of your faith. What I begin in you, I promise to complete it, even at the day of my return. And if Jesus is the beginning and end of the larger story, you know what that means? He is the beginning and the end of my story. He's the beginning and end of your story. For I was once lost. I did not have a story apart from God. I had no hope in this world. And let me tell you about a man who stepped into my story and made my life brand new again. That same man is the God-man Jesus Christ who wants to step into your story and begin your life again. So that you would not have to taste a second death. But instead life. How will the completion of the story happen? Same way it began, with Jesus. We know where we're headed. We know how it will happen. But who will be there with us? We know God will be there. He will dwell with us. But who else? Third point. Who will be there? He says, to the thirsty, in verse 6b, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. For the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. There are those who hate him. There are those who want nothing to do with him. This is what it means to be a coward. This is what it means to be detestable. This is what it means to be without faith. Please do not confuse faithlessness with little or weak faith. Please do not confuse those two. Because it's not the amount of faith that we have, but the object of our faith that saves us. He's talking about those who only claim his name to get gain in life. He's talking about those who are liars. Did you see that word? What do we liars do? They live for today. They're people who save their own face and their image by lying about who they are so nobody can find them out. He also talks about the sexually immoral. Sex was created good for the marriage bed between one man and one woman for all life. But there's those who take sex out of the good context that it was made for and makes it all about self and pleasure now at the expense of others. There's those who are murderers and idolaters. They take the good gifts that God intend for our good. That's what idolatry is. You take the good things that God gives to us as gifts and you turn them into ultimate things thinking they will provide you life, meaning, purpose, and identity. He says all of these folks will be cast into hell. The second death in verse 8. He's saying that those who want nothing to do with their creator will be quarantined from their creator for all eternity. He's going to give them what they want most, and it's not him. How were we able to tell who those folks are? It shows in their fruit. It shows in how they live. See, how you are living today reveals what you are preparing for. I'm going to say that again. How you are living today reveals what you are preparing for. What you participate in today reveals what you believe the end of your story will be. Whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian in here today, some, if not many of you, you live as if you have to create heaven here on earth. And so you guard yourself from all pain and all trials and discomforts, and that eventually turns into a lonely life. Because your fear of others will hurt you in this life. So your life is not marked by a sacrifice and service for others. It's in service to me and my comforts. Many of you today are trying to create your own status, your own security. And some of you, even though you know this will happen, we live as it won't happen, don't we? We live as if we have to be the curators of the final period of the final sentence in our story that we have to rewrite our own story to control the perceptions of others around us, don't we? And we forget that when we look at this list in verse 8, see, those who are truly Christians, who are truly saved, don't say, thank God I'm not like that. Those who are truly saved by Christ are able to look at that list in verse 8. And say, such were some of us, but we are washed by the blood of the Lamb. Such were some of us, but we are washed with the blood of the Lamb. You know, John is using this, this identity language here of conquerors. Do you see that in verse 7? He says the conquerors will have this heritage. Conquerors will be called sons and daughters of God. What does he mean when he says conquerors there? What does he mean when he says we have conquered? John uses this word in over a dozen verses, a dozen verses throughout the book of Revelation. and he shows us how we become conquerors. Look with me in Revelation 12:11. And they, that is the believers, the church, the Christians, they have conquered him, that is the enemy, the beast, Babylon, how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. You see how were they able to be conquerors? Not in their own strength. But in the sacrifice of the Lamb who was slain for their sins, in the sacrifice of the one who says, I am making all things new, by the sacrifice of the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, because Jesus has already conquered the punishment of their sin and their shame of trying to narrate and write their own stories. He's conquered their first death. And if they know that he has conquered his first death, they don't live as if they love their lives anymore. Why are they saying I don't love my life anymore? It's because Jesus, the Lamb of God, did not love his own life, but loved us to his death. And he was buried in the grave and he rose three days later because what's true of Jesus is true of me. What belongs to Jesus belongs to me. His story is now my story. If he died in my sin, then I have died in my sin. If he was raised from the grave, to conquer my sin, then I will be raised from the grave one day, conquering my own sin. I will not have a second death. I will have life. And this is all because Jesus, for you, church, he has taken on your story of fear, of shame, of guilt, so that you can take on his story of righteousness, not by what you do, but solely by what he's done for you in his life, his death, and his his resurrection. And Jesus has told us from the beginning that all of this was written about him from the beginning of the Bible, that when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, met with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Their hearts burned while he was with them. You want to know why? It's because he was showing them that the law, the prophets, and the Psalms were all written about him. That he is the Alpha. He is the beginning of all things. He is the starter of our faith. He has created us. And because we have brought sin into this world, separated ourselves from God, he's going to show us how he has reconciled us back to himself, that in the beginning, Jesus was the word by whom, through whom, and for whom the world was created. And he's come now to this earth to be the second Adam, the true and better Adam who did obey about a tree, but not to get blessings, but to get cursed on that cross that was the tree so that you and I can be blessed. In Exodus, Jesus is the true Passover lamb who was slain once and for all for the consequence of our sin, which is death, so that death would not defeat us, but death would pass over us. In Leviticus, he is the great high priest who sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses, yet he was without sin. In Numbers, he is the cloud by day and the fire by night, the very presence of God manifested to us in his birth. In Deuteronomy, he is the great prophet after the order of Moses, where he doesn't just come preaching the law to us, but he comes fulfilling the law in our place as our substitute. In Joshua, Jesus is the one who goes into the land before us to defeat our enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And in Judges, Jesus is the true and better judge who doesn't just execute a perfect justice from his throne, but comes to this earth and receives the just that you and I rightly deserve and in Ruth he is our great kinsman redeemer. in first and second Samuel. In Kings and Chronicles, he is the Davidic king who doesn't just destroy our enemies with a sling or a stone in his hands, but with nails in his hands and his feet. In Ezra, he is our faithful teacher. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of God's holy temple, not with stones or with bricks, but with people that he's redeemed by his blood. In Esther, he's not the one who just risks his life inside of a palace for those outside of the palace. No. He's the one who willingly gave his life to be crucified outside the city gates so that his enemies could be welcomed into the kingdom. In Job, Jesus is the truly innocent sufferer. Psalms, he is the Davidic king who sings songs of deliverance over us as he is forsaken on the cross. In Proverbs, he is wisdom incarnate. In the song of Solomon, he is the bridegroom of The church in Hosea, he is the husband who purchases back his unfaithful wife, the church, who has whored herself out to false idols and false gods. In Jonah, he is our true and better foreign missionary who comes to us not to preach condemnation, but to take on our damnation so that we can be offered grace and mercy through him And in the Minor Prophets, Jesus is the Savior and Redeemer whose feet are beautiful because they've been pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities so that he can offer salvation to us instead of condemnation. This whole story is all about Jesus. Everything is all about Jesus. It points to who he is. And in the New Testament, Jesus comes to this earth from the same line of people he has come from. When you read that Old Testament, you do not find heroes, do you? You find men and women who fail over and over again, but a God who remains faithful to all of his promises. Even the promise to Crush the head of the offspring of the serpent from Genesis 3. He's come. Come for the broken, the homeless, the have nots, the have bens, the guilty, the fearful, the shame ridden, the marginalized, the mourners. He's come for me. He has come for you, and he's come for those who know that they cannot be righteous on their own, that they cannot purchase their way back to heaven, but they thirst for it. Do you long and you thirst for this type of kingdom that has no end? To you, he says in Revelation, I offer you the drink of righteousness, but I'm not accepting your works. I'm not accepting a payment because it's already been paid in full in my life, death, and resurrection. And after he rose from the grave because the grave could not hold him, death could not contain him, the Alpha and the Omega says, I'm coming back to get you. I'm coming back to make all things new. Do you know that everything that you are looking for in this life can be found in Jesus' story? Everything that you're trying to write about your life is fulfilled in Jesus' story. Whether it's status, satisfaction, security, or safety, it's all found in the completion of God's story for you. Which can be your story if you trust his words. If you trust his words, your future can be secure in Jesus. No more pain. No more tears. Who wants that? Your status can be set in Jesus, in his story. You can be called a beloved daughter and son of God. Who wants that? You, your future satisfaction is met in Jesus' story. You will have pleasures forevermore. Anybody want pleasures that don't one dry? And your future safety is secure in Jesus. Because what he starts, he finishes. And he promises he will never leave you or forsake you. What would happen if we were not only taught this revelation, but we caught this revelation? What would happen? I'll tell you what. There would be a reordering of our lives. Our lives would not be anticipating the next best thing in this life. It would be anticipating the best thing that's promised for us, that's set for us. We would be a church who would no longer find joys in the temporary things of this world because our joy is already complete in Jesus. We'd be a church who would stop looking out for number one, but instead look out for the sake of others so that they might know Jesus, so that the nations, a multitude of nations might come in and worship this king. And we'd be a church who wouldn't center our lives on Renaissance's story, but we'd be a church who would center our lives on Jesus' story. Oh, our future anticipation of the completion of the story invites you now into our right now, here, today, participation in the story. Will you join Jesus? Because here's what I'm confident of, church. He who began a good work in you. He will complete it. Look at me the pressure's off to finish your story. It's already been written. He who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, let's anticipate the story and participate in the story. We often forget that this is our future, right? Usually when I'm sharing the gospel with others, I forget about the good news that is coming I'm so focused on the good news that has happened. Good news is not just something in the past, but it's something in the future as well. That's what gospel means, good news. And we forget often, do we not, the good news of our future.